following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. Well, today we're teaching through the book of Acts. We're continuing through this series, and it's kind of parallel to what happens in our culture. Our culture is really obsessed with these TV shows about law, court cases, and trials. Have you noticed that? You turn the TV on, there's all kinds of them on, all kinds of shows that, that have trial scenes and maybe juries or judges and lawyers. And, and I think the reason we like that stuff is because as we're watching a show, there's stuff that comes out. You didn't know it was going to come out, but it comes out in a trial. And some of the historic ones that were rated really high, there was Perry Mason. Perry Mason's very old school, but that was one of the first ones to start putting on a series like this where, where the viewers just skyrocketed because everyone was, what's going to happen? What are they going to find out? Uh, another one was Law and Order. Now, Law and Order has been around almost 20 years, and they've done Law and Order LA, New York, Florida, Vegas, whatever. They got like 20 different Law and Orders because people love to find out what's happening and things are discovered. Uh, even another more recent show with a comical twist is Defenders. Has anyone seen The Defenders? Sometimes that features our very own David Neronia, who's on there as a lawyer, believe it or not. But it's kind of cool. People love to find out what's happening next in these, in these trials. Things get discovered during trials. Sometimes they're, the only way something can come out is in a trial. And it's the same in our lives, too. Sometimes we're going through a trial, and it's in the trial that stuff comes out. And stuff would never come out or be discovered if there weren't a trial. So trials are an important part of our life. There is discovery during these trials. There's things that come to light. And uh, in the book of Acts, we're in the middle of another legal series, not a TV series, but in the life of Paul. And we're looking at this. It's kind of like a four-part series in Paul's life. And he's in a legal situation right now where he's in a few different trials. There's a sequence. I don't know what it would be called if it was a TV show. Maybe it's Law and Order Israel. Maybe it's Roman Law, AD 60. Maybe it's Paulie TV. I don't know what the name would be, but um, it is literally a sequence with Paul where he's in these different snapshots, these different sequences of trials. And this is a a four-part trial. To set this up, he traveled around the Roman Empire three times, sharing the faith, sharing what Jesus showed him. And people's lives are changing everywhere. It's amazing. But some of the religious Jews back in Jerusalem were not happy with this. Now, Paul used to be just like them. Paul was a Pharisee. He knows everything they know, but he also knows the Jewish Messiah came. He knows the Jewish Messiah died and rose again. He knows that as a fact, and that changes everything in his life. So he's going around sharing this everywhere. Well, when he finishes his third trip and he ends up back to Jerusalem, that's when they get him and have him arrested. So Paul stands before the Jewish leadership, and they couldn't really find him guilty of anything. And then he goes, there's a riot that breaks out. So he goes before a governor, a governor by the name of Felix. Now, this governor, Felix, puts on a trial, asks the questions, and has his accusers show up. And they have no definitive proof against Paul. They can't find him guilty of anything. So Paul is innocent. But what the governor does is puts Paul in jail for two years. And then a new governor comes in. The new governor shows up and is like, What's up with the prisoner who's just sitting around for two years with no real charges against him? And so today we're going to see a second trial scene by another governor. And we're going to see that during these trials, there's things that come out. There's things that are very revealing. And today the topic of the message is called dead or alive. 
Not only did they want Paul dead or alive, they wanted him, but we're going to see this topic of of dead or alive is going to come out. And as we go through this, I want you to think about this. How, How alive are you this morning? How alive are you? And and I say that because everyone walking around with a pulse technically is alive. But we're not human beings having a spiritual experience down here. We are spiritual beings having a temporary human experience down here. There's a lot of folks walking around only halfway alive. There's a lot of folks walking around. If they're halfway alive, that means they're halfway dead. They're alive in the flesh, but they're not alive in the spirit. And Jesus came with his mission and said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, life to the fullest, eternal life that begins here and now in the power and presence of his Holy Spirit and eternally, both, not just then, but here and now. And some folks get that and they love that and they, it changes everything in their life and they, they go around telling other people like Paul did and other people, they maybe have a belief system somewhere up here. They have some maybe doctrine or theology or they understand some principles, but there's no life. That's sometimes why they call seminary, cemetery. Some people can go away to cemetery and they can learn more fundamentals, principles, categories. It's good, it's healthy, but sometimes it can take away the very life. And yet sometimes you can see a new believer come to know about the resurrected Jesus And man, they are fired up. They have some life going on in here. Why? Because God gave it to them and it's a new beginning and it's profound. Paul is really on trial over this whole issue right here, this dead or alive issue. So let's see what happens in the the sequence if we can. We're going to break this down in sections. Acts 25, you can follow along. Verse 1, it says, Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. And after spending eight or ten days with them, He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made this defense, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. So the setup is this, Paul already had a duplicate trial with the last governor two years earlier. Same issues, same accusers. They couldn't find anything wrong with them. Paul's left in jail until they get a new governor. The new governor, his first week on the job is like, let me clean up some of this old business and we have an old prisoner here with no charges. So he goes down to Jerusalem, kind of a PR trip to meet a lot of the Jewish folks because it's a Jewish region. And they're saying, hey, up there, you have a prisoner back in Caesarea. We really want him dead. And he's like, well, what did he do? If there's an issue, you've got to come up and press charges. I'll hear your case right away. So they all come back up to Caesarea, has court immediately. They present the charges. No one has any proof of Paul breaking any law. And basically he says, I didn't break any Jewish law. I didn't break any of those. The temple, there's rules of engagement with the Jewish temple. And they have to be respected because there's peace and order under the Roman Empire. He's like, I didn't break any of those laws either. And when it comes to Rome... I didn't break any Roman laws either. 
I didn't do anything wrong. And so here Paul is two years later in the exact same scenario. And then the governor moves on in verse 9. He says, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And after Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. See, Paul knows, if you read back another chapter or two, you'll realize that when Paul was in Jerusalem, there was a plot against him to kill him. And when Paul was going to be transferred from one jail facility to another, they were going to ambush him. Two years later, the plot still exists. And when he's asked, are you willing to go back to Jerusalem, Paul realizes, no, I can't go back there because there's an ambush to kill me. And Paul is a Roman citizen. And as citizens, you have rights, we have rights. Paul says, there's an appeal process and I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar. Here's one thing that Paul realizes in the trials. And maybe you and I should realize this as well. When you go through trials, there are these opportunities that come up. And these opportunities would never, ever come up unless you were in a trial. When you're in a trial, you're in and around people and places and things that you're normally not around. There are rare opportunities. There are these random moments that happen because you're in a trial. And Paul realizes that these court cases that he's going through, they're getting him in front of governors and kings and leaders and groups of people that he would never normally get to speak to. So Paul is seeing an opportunity in his trial. And if we were wise, we would see the opportunities in our trials that way too. When we go through a trial, we have these rare shots of opportunity that only come up for a window. Paul recognizes them. And so we should recognize too that a trial is a place of opportunity. So let's see what happens next now. It moves on in verse 13. And this is where we're going to look at the substance of this text. We're going to land right on a major point here coming up. Verse 13, it says, A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had the opportunity to defend himself against these charges. And when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. And when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they made some points of dispute with him about their own religion and, listen to this, and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss on how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem, stand trial there in these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor, Caesar's decision, I ordered that he be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. So the setup is this. The governor Festus, he inherits a prisoner. He puts on a trial. Can't find anything wrong with him. 
Paul knows if he's going to be sent to Jerusalem, he'll be ambushed, so he appeals to Caesar. Paul also knows the further he goes along in this court process, he's in front of bigger audiences of people of influence. He's in front of kings. He's in front of governors. He's going to go before Caesar, eventually testifying of the great things that the resurrected Jesus did in his life. This is huge. He's like, I couldn't even imagine this. If I wasn't arrested, I'd never have these opportunities. So he's sharing all these things. These are great opportunities. And he doesn't know what charges to put on his, on his paperwork. So you can't send them to Caesar without any charges. So King Agrippa comes to town to pay respects to the new governor and says, hey, would you guys mind helping me out on this matter? I, I don't know what charges to give this guy. And they're like, yes, we'd be happy to hear him. But this is what I want to talk about. The whole dispute here, Paul is innocent, but they're saying the Jews want him dead. Uh, the Roman government doesn't know what to do with him. And the whole dispute, the whole confusion here, Paul is focused on this resurrection topic. The dispute revolves around about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. You know, this is monumental because there are people around the globe that when the topic of Jesus or the Christian faith comes up, they would say, yeah, I don't know, something about a dead man named Jesus that some people say is alive. This is monumental because if the story is about a dead man named Jesus, then there's not a whole lot of hope and a future in the faith. There's no purpose and presence and power of God to continue any further. However, however, if the dead man named Jesus who paid the price for the sins of the world actually threw off death and came back to life and said, I'm the first one and you're all going to follow, you'll all rise to life as well. If that's the case, that changes everything. Paul knows this because he's seen with his own eyes. The apostles know this. There's accounts in the, in the Bible of Jesus appearing multiple times to multiple people in multiple situations. Even the Corinthians says five, over 500 people at the same place in the same time. These people getting up there as Jesus is talking, seeing holes in his hands going, yeah, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Even though he dies, he's going to live. And the resurrected Jesus is talking to these folks. And they're like, we get it loud and clear. And yet here they are later on, this governor knows nothing about this. And he's like, something about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul says is alive. This is a big deal. We're going to talk more about that. But he says, I was at a loss in how to investigate that. I, I, I had no idea. How do you investigate the reality of whether Jesus rose or is he a dead man named Jesus? A legitimate topic. How do you investigate? He says, I was at a loss on how to investigate it. It's surprising the guy could be smart enough to be a governor, but not smart enough to try to investigate. Is there a dead man named Jesus, or is there a resurrected one named Jesus? And saying you're at a loss is really a bad excuse. There are ways to investigate the resurrection, because everything that Paul's on trial hinges on this. Did Jesus die and rise to life? If so, changes everything. If not, changes everything. That's really what he's on trial for. That's why some people hate him and some people love him. Some people don't believe it and they want Paul to stop sharing the message. Other people are like, the resurrected Jesus has changed my life too. It's real and it's powerful. So on this topic, can it be investigated? Absolutely it can. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, Josh McDowell. Any of you heard of Josh McDowell? He's the author. He wrote uh, More Than a Carpenter. He wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he was a guy who was totally opposed to anything and everything about the Christian faith in Jesus. To him, 
Jesus was a dead man that they're saying is alive. He was convinced of that. He was a smart guy, and he went on to gather his proof to make a case against Christ. And what he decided to do, if he's going to look at the Bible, he looked at his options in the New Testament, and he decided to take the book of Luke. The book of Luke happens to document more times, places, people, locations. I mean, it's got detail for days. Other gospels are more about the love of Jesus and what he did and the miracles. But Luke has got, he's got the name of the person who was ruling in what year and what location and what time, who came before and after them. And he's like, you know what? Josh McDowell's like, I'm going to take that book and I am going to tear it apart. And I am going to find so many historical flaws and I am going to find geographical flaws. I'm going to find so many mistakes in this to kind of prove my case. And he went on this quest to try to disprove this. And what he ended up finding is that the Gospel of Luke is the most accurate ancient historical document we have. There's nothing else exists on the planet to give the detail, time, location. Some people didn't even think some of these kings and rulers existed until they put a shovel in the ground in Israel and start digging up something. And then they discover these things that, hey, the Bible talked about that. We didn't even know it was real, but the Bible was right. And they do this again and again and again with Uh, discovery in Israel, proving the Bible right with times and places and people and things. And Josh McDowell ended up turning around and saying, he is no longer a dead man named Jesus. He is a resurrected one. The facts are true. The, The evidence can be checked out. The evidence should be checked out. We shouldn't be a loss. He wrote evidence that demands a verdict. Another one, some of you may know, Lee Strobel, same thing. He wrote the case for Christ. Another guy totally opposed to this dead man named Jesus until he did his homework and he explored and it, and it can be discovered and you realize, wow, this is a reality and it's true. Uh, the resurrection is a reality and it's the basis of our faith. It is the basis of our faith. 1 Corinthians 15 talks all about this, that our whole faith hinges on the resurrection, the reality of it. And There are some great ways to verify these things. I would say the first one would be scripture. Um, Some people, Jewish folks, for example, they believe in the authority of the Old Testament scripture, which is great. So scripture is the basis. So for them to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they would need to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And so for them, the authority of scripture, using scripture itself, there's many Jewish folks that have realized that Jesus fulfilled these Jewish prophecies in their own scripture. And they realize, wow, it's true. So scripture is a profound way to do it. Um, another, uh, another one is actually the existence of the church. Do you realize that the people who saw the resurrected Jesus were later being told, you better stop talking about this or else we will kill you. And it would be very easy to say, I'm sorry, it was just a, a bad idea or a figment of my imagination. But they ended up saying stuff like what the apostle uh, Peter said in Acts 4.20. He said, we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and what we've heard. <laughs> you can kill us. You can throw us to lions. But we've seen the resurrected Jesus. And so did hundreds and hundreds of other people. And we're not going to stop. So the very existence of the church is the proof of the resurrection And I would suggest to you guys that the greatest proof of the resurrection, the greatest proof, is you and me. We are the greatest proof of the resurrection. Because if Jesus is alive, he can change lives. If he's a dead man named Jesus, he can't change lives. 
I would not be standing before you today. The living, resurrected Jesus changed my life. My life didn't get changed or turned around or put on a track because of some theology, because of some doctrine, because of some story. My life got changed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is real and he is alive and you can call on him. He is alive. He is living. He is active and he moves in the life of his people. And some people don't really get that. To some people, this concept of your faith, my faith, the Christian faith, some people think it's a dead man named Jesus. It's very unfortunate because maybe they never called on him. Many folks are like, Lord, if you're real, I need you to show me. Many people share that testimony where they get to a point where they're like, okay, I don't know for sure, but I'm willing to take a step of faith. God, if you're real, Jesus, show me, show me. And God coming, crashing down and intervening in the lives of folks like you and I. Why? Because he's alive. That's why God is called the living God, the living God. That's why when he first revealed his name to, to Moses, the first name of God that's actually pronounced from the mouth of God, Moses says, who should I say sent me? I am Yahweh. That means I was and I am and I will always be. I am. Always. He's the living God. And so there's something profound about this reality because God poured out his love through his son, Jesus. He died. He rose. He gives life today. And yet some people think the story is something about a dead man named Jesus. Kind of like what Festus is talking about. It's like, oh no, man. You are seriously missing it if you think it's about a dead man named Jesus. It is so not about a dead man named Jesus. It's about a resurrected son of God named Jesus who changes lives and has been doing it for 2,000 years. It's a reality. Uh, Not some dead religion, but a living relationship. And so, if you're a note taker this morning, you can jot the first one down. The first one is that many people view Jesus and Christianity as dead or irrelevant. That's a true statement. There are people around the globe, maybe not you or me, maybe some of your friends, maybe some of your family, maybe some of your neighbors, but they view Jesus and Christianity as dead or irrelevant. Why? Because they never saw the real deal. They never experienced the real deal. And so for them, it's just some story about something. It's unfortunate, but Europe, much of Europe would be considered a post-Christian region. Post-Christian. Because they experienced a form, a form of Christianity, but I don't know that there was ever a true vibrant life throughout Europe, and it varied. Some places they were on fire, but the Bible talks about a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. In other words, there can be buildings and statues and stained glass and and crosses and all these things. That's not the relational power of the living God. That's a form of godliness. Uh, Europe for 1,400 years has had forms of godliness, and What's happened, unfortunately, is some people were raised seeing the form of godliness, but not seeing the power thereof. And when you see the power of God, when you see the transforming power of God in your life, you can't be the same. And you get excited about it. And you want to tell other people because it's real. But there is a whole culture of people raised with a form of godliness. And they don't see life in that. And so for them, it could be a story about a dead man named Jesus. But when you see the transforming power of the resurrected Jesus, it changes you forever, and it's radical, it's powerful. The second point this morning is a question for you to write down, and and please think about this through the week. How 
alive is your Jesus? How alive is your Jesus? I know how alive my Jesus is. If you ask people around the globe about Jesus, they might, some might say, well, it's a story about a dead man named Jesus. Others would say, well, no, I, I mean, technically, I, I believe he died and rose. How alive is he in your life? Some would say, well, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I pray once in a while. I don't know how alive he is. You need to know how alive he is. You need to know how alive your Jesus is. You got to know that. You got to know that. If you know how alive your Jesus is, you pray completely differently. Whatever you ask for in my name, when you do these things in my name, and that's taking authority in the spiritual realm, and that's walking out the will of God and God's power in your life, it's so important. How alive is your Jesus? Because everything hinges on that. There's people in the church who believe in the story of a dead man named Jesus and technically, technically believe he rose. But how alive is their Jesus? Well, that varies. It varies dramatically. And if you want to have a victorious walk in the living God, you want to walk in the power, you want to walk in the resurrection power that the apostles walked in, you better know how alive your Jesus is. That's really, really important to know how alive your Jesus is. And people want to see Jesus alive in you. We can talk about a faith, a doctrine, that doesn't change life. But when people see Jesus alive in you through what God does through you, people know it's the real deal. And that's how my life changed. I saw people who Jesus was doing things through folks. And I'm like, he must be alive. If he can do this, he must be alive. People want to see Jesus alive in your life and in my life. It's been said that if the church cannot demonstrate how someone who died nearly 2,000 years ago can make a profound difference in people's lives, then we too will be painting a picture of a dead man named Jesus. You see how that works? If they don't see something, they still think it's a story about a dead man named Jesus. And I will give the rest of my life for people to know it's not a story about a dead man named Jesus. It's about the resurrected one who changes lives for everyone who calls on his name. That's what he said. All who call on my name. God's not partial. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. I don't care if someone's Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, non-believer, atheist, he's saying, you know what? Whenever you're ready, you want to call on my name and I'll be there. And he's the God of resurrection. He's the God of life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He changes lives all the time. How alive is your Jesus? And that's why we need to encounter him, guys, on a daily basis. If Jesus is very alive to you, you will take the time to stop and commune with him. You will stop and take the time to pray, to seek his face. You will stop and take time to get in the word. If he's really alive in your life, you take the time for him. If he's not alive, well, our day goes like every normal other day of the week. We just go about our business and do our stuff and go to bed and wake up and do it again and do it again. And unfortunately, that's only halfway alive, which means it's halfway dead. God wants us to be all the way alive. How alive is your Jesus? Which leads to the next question for you, which is our third point this morning. How alive are you? How alive are you this morning? I mean, think about that. How alive are you? Are we kind of alive, pretty alive, or very alive? Think about this, because God, through what Jesus did, puts a spirit in us so that we can have this abundant life. The Bible says life to the fullest. That, that's God's design. God's design is that we would not exist, but that we would live. And there's way too many people who are just existing. 
you can walk down the street and you can look at the people or maybe on the job. Some people, they're just kind of, they're just in some mode. They're on like autopilot. They're just, they're just existing. And week after week turns to month, turns to year, and they're just existing. And life is too short to exist. We weren't made to exist. We were made to live. And that's God's design. That's the design for his people. He loves us and he wants us to fully live. And yet some are just existing. I was riding my mountain bike over here by the 101 and the 405. I love that spot out there. You see it when you're driving the 101. You look at the big wash out there in the walls, you know, the big bridge. You guys see that? It looks like a, they've used it for movies, for prison sets and a bunch of movies down there. But it's a really cool spot. But I like riding my mountain bike out there and it gives you a great vantage point to pray uh, because you look at the 101 and the 405, which is one of the busiest intersections in our nation right there. And you can sit and pray over the city or pray and you're looking at thousands of cars, thousands going north, south, east and west, just flying by all day long. And in the natural, that's what's going on. But in the spiritual, there are some people on those roads that are not existing, that are living. But there's an awful lot of people on those roads that are just existing. There's people that think they're going north, south, east, and west, naturally. But spiritually, they have no clue where they're going. There's people all day long. Thousands, thousands of people. I sat up there and I was praying. I'm like, God, would you somehow, just like this intersection, can people have an encounter with you so that they will know that you're not a, a dead man named Jesus, but you are the resurrected one who changes lives? Gives power, purpose, direction, clarity, all the above. And many are just, just going through life, just doing my thing again and again, day after day. And they're existing. And that's no way to live. That's not God's design. Paul knows that. That's why he's on this mission. That's why he doesn't quit. That's why he goes through everything he goes through. Because I know who my resurrected Jesus is, and no one's going to keep me quiet. No one's going to stop me. I'll stay in jail. I'll go to seizure. I'll do what I have to, but I know what I know what I know. And when you know how alive your Jesus is, you also know how alive you are. You know why? Because they go hand in hand. If your Jesus is very alive, then you are very alive. And if your Jesus isn't very alive, then you're not very alive. It's just the way it works. Because it's not us, it's Christ in us. Does that make sense? That's the life. That's the design. When we talk about how to have this life that represents how alive Jesus is, if we were honest with ourselves, we want God to do things in our life. We want others to see Jesus in us. We want that. And yet, sometimes we just get a little burned out, a little tired, and start running out of steam. Am I the only one? Anybody? Okay. The apostles would continually get together and pray and be filled with the Spirit. Not one time, but again, God would meet them. He'd fill them again. Maybe you've been on a retreat. In fact, ladies, many of you have gone on a retreat. Lately. So where you meet with God, he gets you all fired up. You're like, yeah, this is great. I'm alive. My Jesus is very alive, and I'm very alive. That's great. But then you're going through people cutting you off on the freeway and things on the job and family and drama and other things. And before you know it, you're like, how come I'm only half alive as I was two weeks ago? Okay, this is what happens. Because when you spend time with Jesus like that, the more alive your Jesus is, the more alive you are. But life kind of starts to take that out of you. And that's why we need to stop. And we need to ask Jesus again, will you fill me again? Will you do this again? I, I need more of you right now because I'm running on fumes. You can't do this on your own. 
Nobody can do, if, if we could do this on our own, we wouldn't need Jesus. We can't do this on our own. And that's why we need the resurrected Jesus. We need the power of him in our life. And so I would encourage you, we're going to have an opportunity to pray after the service. And I want to encourage you, if, if you're in a place where you're like, no, 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 my Jesus is so alive right now and I am so alive right now because I've been spending time with him and this is beautiful, praise God. But if you're running a little lean, if you're running a little on fumes and you know you are, just like all of us do, take the bold step in faith and come forward and get prayer. It's not embarrassing. Just say, I just want more Jesus. Beautiful. You don't have to say anything. We want to pray for you. We're going to pray, but we're going to pray with an authority that God gives us. And we're going to pray for God's power in your life so that you can be filled with more of him. And that's where it begins. The Bible says it's not by strength or by might, it's by the power of my spirit, says the Lord. And there's so many folks trying in their strength and in their might and in their strength and in their might. And they get more and more burned out and tired and exhausted. And God's going, listen, guys, it's not by strength or might. It's by the power of my spirit. And some realize that and go, yeah, that's why I need more of you. And others are like, no, I'm good. I can handle this. I got it. We don't. We need more of him. So we're going to close in prayer and we're going to ask God to give us the strength. I know you're here this morning because you have a love for God and you want others to see the resurrected Jesus in your life. You do. That's your desire. That's your heart. You wouldn't be here if you didn't want Jesus to do more things. And think about this. What, what kind of evidence did you need when you came to faith? What, what kind of evidence did you need? You probably needed some. You needed to see it in people. What, what kind of evidence did you need? And think about what kind of evidence does your friends and family need? You got friends, family, and what kind of evidence do they need? Fastest goes, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't look into it. I was at a loss. No, no, we're not at a loss. We can investigate. What, what kind of evidence do your friends and family and neighbors need? See, some, um, some need to see the evidence of God's grace. They need to see grace. We don't see a lot in our society, but God's grace is real. They need to see that and they go, Wow, it's real. Some need to see and experience the love of God. The love of God is powerful. And when you, when you experience the love of God, you can't compare it to anything else on the planet. Some are like, I just need to experience God's love. Would you show me God? Others might say, I need the proof from Scripture. I know, you know, I've talked to many Jewish believers. They're like, show me, show me. I need the proof. Beautiful. Some need the proof of Scripture. Some need to... Observe God's power over darkness. The entire Gospel of Mark is based on that. You want to see Jesus, the resurrected one, walk around just smashing darkness everywhere he steps, just crushing it? Read the Gospel of Mark. Some people, they know there's a spiritual warfare out there and they're on the losing side of it right now. They'd say, you know what I need? I need to observe God's power over darkness. That's what I need. And if I can see that, I'm all in. Some people, that's what they need. Some need to know that they can be entirely forgiven. Some have a weight, a debt. Inevitably, we all do, but some people come to terms with this early on and go, I got some stuff, I need a clean slate, and I don't know if God can give me one. There's many people who think that way. And absolutely, unequivocally, yes, he can. He does all the time. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. Fresh starts are his business. He's all about fresh starts. And some need to know that the God of heaven can put a peace in their heart. There's some that have a sense of turmoil, a sense of anxiety that just doesn't go away. 
And that's because they've never met the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. That's his name. The resurrected Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He can give you a peace that nothing on planet Earth ever, ever can. And some people are like, yes, that's what, that's what I need. That's what I need. And some need to see God's intervention in their lives. They're in a place where they'd say, you know, if God showed up and did something right now, I know only God could have done that. It couldn't have been circumstance. It couldn't have been happenstance. Or maybe some of you are in the faith looking back on, yep, no, God did something that only God could have done. I get it. <laughs> I don't need any more proof. I'm in. I believe in the resurrected one, and he's very alive. And so my prayer, guys, is that no one ever associates you or me with a dead man named Jesus. Never, ever, ever. We don't know a dead man named Jesus. We know one who died, but in three days he rose to life. He's not a dead man named Jesus. He never will be again a dead man named Jesus. And so my prayer is that no one ever associates us with a dead man named Jesus. And I also pray that there would be less of us so that there could be more of him because there can't really be both. If we want more Jesus in our life, we have to be willing to say, I'm willing to decrease, but he will increase. And people, when they see you, they will see the resurrected Jesus in your life. And they will know just how alive Jesus really is. Well, I'm going to close in prayer right now. Mighty God, I just pray, uh, I pray for all of us, Lord. We want you to be more alive in our lives. We want to be more alive. And we want you as our Jesus to be more alive. The evidence of your life is what we want, God. So I just pray for all of us in this room. I pray that you would show us, Lord God, how to make you more alive. Show us what areas or what compartments or categories we're just kind of keeping you as the, a dead man named Jesus. Maybe we believe, but we don't act it out or live, or maybe there's no evidence in our life. I just pray that the reality of how alive you are would be so clear to all of us that when people would see us, they'd say, huh, you've got this life in you. I, I see something in your eyes. It's life. I, I, what is that? It's Jesus because he's alive. That's what you see. My Jesus is alive and he's helping people to not exist but to live all over the globe. Do you want to know him? Can I introduce you to him? He loves you. He knows everything about you. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. And he goes, I love you. But you're still only halfway alive. And I'm coming that you might have life and have life to the fullest. I just pray, Lord, if there's any today, Lord God, that are saying, well, that's sort of me. I, I know about Jesus, but I've never actually accepted him in my heart. I pray today would be the day that if any would say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave. Would you take away my sins? Would you give me a fresh start? Would you help me turn and follow you from this day forward? Because I want to be all the way alive. And I know it can only happen through you. If you're saying that, tell me or someone you came with. We can pray for you and encourage you in your, in your new faith. And Lord, the rest of us, show us how to be alive. And I just pray today there'd be an outpouring of your spirit on lives of people that are willing to ask. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more? You're a good God. And I pray you would do that today. Fill us fresh, Lord. Bless our fellowship time. Have your way with us. We love you, mighty God. We ask these things in, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit valleymetrochurch.com.